This podcast is a presentation of Sunset Presbyterian Church. For more information, log on to our website at www.sunsetpres.org. Well, good morning. I'm so thrilled to be here, to be back, what feels like home for me, and to see so many familiar faces and some new ones, too. It's really hard to believe that it's been three and a half years since my family and I moved back to Texas. Um, Like Lindsay said, a lot happened in that time. I graduated in May of last year with my MDiv, and in that same month, I was commissioned as a provisional pastor in the United Methodist Church, and I have a picture from that to show with you, which will come up as I'm talking. Um, There we go. That was when I was commissioned. So I'm now in what what we have is a two-year residency program So that will culminate in May of 2020 with my becoming a fully ordained pastor in the United Methodist Church. It's quite a long process. So I'm serving as pastor of outreach and connecting ministry at the Woodlands United Methodist Church. And I've also been so blessed to be part of the preaching rotation in our traditional services. And in that three and a half year time span, I wrote this study with my good friend Susan Kent. We wrote a second one on the books of First and Second Peter, and we are getting ready to start a third. So it has been crazy busy and crazy blessed, just a wonderful time that has required for me a lot of courage and faith and the power of the Holy Spirit, the help from community, one of which is y'all here. It's, you have been such an instrumental part of my journey, and so I'm so glad to be back with you today. And of course, if you remember me, coffee and chocolate have played a big role in bringing me here today. So the book of Joshua has always been one of my favorites. But in the last few years, I've really embraced its lessons, courage, like Lindsay said, leadership, um, stepping out into unknown waters. So this morning, you're going to begin your own journey through this book. You get to relive the Israelites' fear and trepidation before they cross the Jordan, Uh, the courage and strength of the prostitute Rahab, who's an outsider that becomes an insider, the shocking disobedience of Achan, an insider who becomes an outsider, and the fierce battles. There's lots of difficult commands of destruction, and then we enter this time of peaceful, division of the land, and we end with a rededication of the people to the Lord. So there will be challenges ahead for you as you read this book. You're going to rejoice over God's goodness, but you will also question how some of what you read can correlate with this loving and gracious God that we know. In the end, my prayer is that as you wrestle with this text, as you bring to it your own hopes and fears, your own struggles and victories, you you will emerge with a deeper understanding of God, a deeper conviction that you too can live courageously no matter what the road ahead looks like for you. So before we dive in, there's a few background things that we need to talk about, some important considerations to hold in your mind as you read through the text. So they are gonna be the genre, of the text, and I have a slide for this, the extra-biblical evidence, and the intent of the author. 
So let me pause for a moment and say that when we study the Bible, scholars look through many different lenses because we're trying to grasp the most robust understanding of the text that we can get. And so we categorize those lenses into three groups. The first is the world behind the text. So this includes studying the text in its original language, studying the culture and sociology of the authors of the text. So a lot of times in this, we look at extra biblical accounts, history, writings from the time, and even archeological evidence. And then we look at the ways in which the oral traditions were finally turned into the written form we have today. So the next slide, we also look at the world of the text using literary analysis. So this is really the text itself. We had behind the text, then we have in the text. Studying things like genre, context, word studies, and setting. And then finally, next slide, we look at the world that lies in front of the text. We study what we bring to the text as readers. So for instance, a feminist viewpoint or African and Asian Latino viewpoint, or even looking at modern day ethics and theology. All of these ways of looking at the Bible work together to ensure that we don't read into the text what we want to read. We have to diligently and carefully examine scripture to uncover what God is going to say. So the book of Joshua presents a very unique challenge to us because it is a historical account but it is written in a genre known as conquest literature. And this is an ancient genre that was used by all Near Eastern peoples. So I have a slide to talk about the aspects of this. Um, the first, language of annihilation. This is the tough stuff to read. It was common for ancient Near Eastern nations to make these broad sweeping statements that a military conquest resulted in the wholesale annihilation of an entire group of people. But we know from history that that's not always the case. Uh, the language was ideological and figurative. It wouldn't have crossed the mind of the average reader of the time to take it as anything other than that. So what's an example from our own time? Well, imagine a sports headline that reads, the Portland Trailblazers annihilated their competition in their season's quest for ultimate victory. <laughs> we are still Trailblazer fans, so yes, we would like this headline. Now, we would read that and know that the Trailblazers didn't go out and murder every single person that they faced. We would read it knowing the intent was to communicate this amazing success that they had. Well, in the book of Joshua, this is the type of language you're going to see. Yet we know from history and from even from other books of the Bible, Judges and 1 Samuel, that Israel doesn't eradicate all of the Canaanite peoples. In fact, their failure to do so becomes a huge stumbling block for them. So how do we make sense of this dichotomy between Joshua saying, we wiped out all the Canaanites, and then the beginning of Judges that lists all the people that they didn't remove from the land? Well, by understanding the genre. So next, we find hyperbole in conquest literature. Again, it goes hand in hand with that annihilation talk. So using the trailblazer example, in reading that they annihilated their competition, 
we would understand that that doesn't mean they won every single individual game, but that overall they had a very successful season. Again, we see this in Joshua, and we also see sort of a truncated account of what actually happened when they entered into the land. Again, it's part of the genre. It's also part of the fact that by the time Joshua was put into written form, these events were history. The people knew what had happened. The author knew how it would all turn out and that eventually they would indeed inhabit all the land. Our third point, we find repetition and redundancy in conquest literature. Oh, yay, right? <laughs> There's a formula to the way in which this type of account was written, and it gets a little tedious at times. I fully give you permission to skim the tedious parts. You won't miss anything. There's a whole segment where we put like a bunch of chapters into one chapter of our book because it gets really dry. Or another helpful thing sometimes is to listen to an audio version as you read for over those drier parts or all those lists of names that we can't pronounce. Um, but anyway, this is part of conquest literature. And then the final element we find is a focus on the leader. So the book of Joshua has a heavy focus on Joshua himself. So we don't always get to see what's happening amongst the Israelites, just the day-to-day -day people living there. There's a few instances where we get a brief snapshot of someone else's story, but Joshua is the main star, and this was common to the genre. And in fact, this is common to all of Scripture. For the most part, the Old Testament and even the Gospels are so focused on this people known as Israel. And so we don't have references to what's going on in any other ancient civilization around the world, not in Scripture anyway. So what does this mean for us? Does it mean that the book of Joshua is not history? No. Does it mean it's not true? No. By writing in the genre of conquest literature, Joshua isn't trying to deceive us or paint a false picture. He's using the genre of his time to communicate important theological truths about God while also giving us a summary of what happened when they entered the Promised Land. So at the end of the day, Israel did invade, they did conquer. They did divide the land amongst their 12 tribes, and eventually that territory became the United Kingdom of Israel under the reigns of Saul and David and Solomon, and then it split into two kingdoms in 931 BC. So this is a truthful book but it's one that doesn't necessarily deal with the nuance or minute details of what happened when they entered into Canaan. So next, let's talk about the extra-biblical evidence for the truth of Joshua's claims. We actually have quite a bit of archaeological support for the conquest of the Promised Land. Now here, it's important to note that archaeology, like biblical interpretation, is something that requires careful work. Archaeologists have to interpret the evidence that they find. They rarely uncover an intact set of ruins, and even when they do, it's a snapshot of an ancient people frozen in time. Most of the time, they find shards of pottery, and that's what they use to try to reconstruct what they think happened. And 
no matter what the case, we are so far removed from that time. It is hard for us to bridge that gap. And then there's one other thing to note. Often, lack of archaeological evidence is just as important as finding something. I wish I could spend more time on this with you and take you through all the different pieces of evidence we found, but that would take us way too long. I'll have to come back someday. <laughs> Suffice it to say, we do have evidence in that there are several cities like Jericho, which seem to have been completely destroyed, as Joshua says. And then there's also some evidence of a slower infiltration into the land. Again, that's that truncated time that we're seeing in this conquest literature. Um, so Jericho, the walls are brought down. You're going to read about that in chapter 6. And I have a slide to show you the ruins that remain there. And so, yes, there is some ruins that have been uncovered, but nothing from the time of Joshua. So that speaks to the truth of the utter destruction of Jericho. Finally, one other thing to remember as you read, the theological intent of this book. The author is not just trying to recite historical facts. The author is putting those facts in a greater focus on God and God's plan for redeeming and restoring creation. God had formed this ragtag group of slaves that were the Israelites and even some Egyptian converts who tagged along, and he brought them through the parted waters of the Red Sea to make them a nation. Why? Well, after God guided the people to the foot of Mount Sinai via Moses, God asked Moses to tell the people this in Exodus 19. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God created this nation to be a kingdom of priests for the purpose of reaching out to all peoples on earth. He called them to a different way of living, a holy and set-apart life that God could live among them and work in and through them to bring healing and mercy and justice and grace to all people. God promised Israel this life in Canaan from which they would serve as his hands and feet and voices. God promised them land and community to enable them to weather whatever storm they faced. So the fact that Israel failed in this calling to use their blessings to bless others, well, it's a testimony to their stubbornness and forgetfulness and to sin. And the fact that God made a way for them to enter into this land of promise is a testimony to God's goodness and grace. God is provider. He's protector. He is patient. And we see that in the pages of this story. And that's why it's important to study it today, thousands and thousands of years later. That's why we do our best to wrestle with the difficulties of this text, especially the violent portions because God calls us to trust him and to have faith that God is working all things for good.
for the purpose of those, for those who are called according to his purposes. So yes, there will be challenges as you read through this story, but there will also be moments of joy. There will be moments in which you hear God's voice call you to be strong and courageous, call you to step forward into the rushing water and be not afraid, call you to make peace and live into the great and wonderful promises that God has for your life. I hope in reading this book, you too will join in with the Israelites in accepting Joshua's final challenge to rededicate yourself and to say, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. So as you begin to read, let me give you a few questions to ponder. What is God calling you to do that might be making you afraid? What obstacles lay in your path? How might God want to work in and through you to reach other people with God's grace and mercy and love? And then let me tell you a story that I hope will encourage you as it has me. There is a woman whose name has been obscured by the passing of time, but to whom all female clergy in the United Methodist Church owe a debt of gratitude. Her name is Helenor Alter Davison. And on July 25, 1863, her father John Alter ordained her to preach making her the first woman to be ordained in Methodism. But it wasn't an entirely approved ordination. It would be almost 100 years later before the entire body of the Methodist Church officially voted to give clergy rights to women. Well, Helenor was what we Methodists call a circuit rider. So she traveled miles and miles on horseback on a preaching circuit that took her all over Indiana. It was a